Our passage this morning is from the book of Job. If you want to find that by page number, it's probably on 417 of the of the Pew Bibles. But remember, Job comes right before the Psalms, so if you find the middle of the Bible, it's pretty easy to locate. And it's week two of our entire sermon series, the book of Job, God and Suffering. Uh, we're going to be making our way through the entire book, verse by verse, maybe a little bit different format than what we normally take in terms of a verse by verse walkthrough, because the book of Job uh, lends itself to cover a lot more ground in, in one period after we get out of chapter two. You can see it turns into um, poetry. But we'll take that as it comes. For now, we're going to be looking at Job 1, 6 through 22. So we looked at the first five verses last week. That was an introduction to Job. And now we're going to be taking the rest of that chapter. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we ask this morning as we, we come to hear your word, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Show us the true meaning of this passage. Show us what you intend to, to teach us. Give us ears that listen in faith. Give us proper understanding and then also help us to apply what you teach us to our lives so we can serve you more faithfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we receive something, it's most often very helpful to understand who the sender is. It helps us to respond appropriately if we understand who it is that's sending us something. It can make a big difference in how we respond. Take, for example, uh, an eighth grade boy who receives a Valentine's Day card. And it arrives in the mail in this, this very bright red envelope and on the back written, handwritten are these X's and O's, which is the universal shorthand for hugs and kisses. And, and he sees that, and then he opens the card, and on the front of the card there's a, a picture of a, a cartoon hamster with, with really big muscles, and it says, I love you this much, and he's holding a huge heart that covers the front of the, the greeting card. Now, if that 8th grade boy thinks it's from an 8th grade girl in his class, and he's probably getting really excited about it now. He's probably taking it and looking it over, reading it a couple times, looking for any other notes or hidden messages, maybe even gives it the sniff test to see if there's perfume attached to it. That would be great. And then he probably would take it back to his room and put it in a prominent place, maybe on his dresser or on a bulletin board or something like that, and can be sure that he's going to follow up the next day at school with this girl and thank her for the car, go out of his way, and then see where the discussion goes from there. However, if this card was from the, his grandmother, same card, uh, exact same card, but it's from his grandmother, yeah, he might open it up and, and glance at it, and then after he's done reading it once, just kind of toss it on the kitchen counter and let mom do whatever she does with things that get tossed on the kitchen counter. He probably would take it to his room. He, he, he certainly probably wouldn't go out of his way to contact his grandmother or call her and thank her personally. And if he saw his grandmother, you know, in a couple weeks or, or the next time they got together and she said, hey, did you like the card I sent you? He may have even forgotten about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, thanks, Grandma. Love you, too. Same card. Different sender. 
makes a big difference on the response. And then in the same way, we need to know who the sender is when it comes to suffering, because that has an impact on our response. In our passage today, Job is tested severely, and the sender is God. God is the sender. To be sure, Satan plays a part, absolutely, there's no denying that. But God is the one who ultimately sends a severe test of faith to Job. It's clear from the text, it's clear from the rest of scripture, it's clear that Job understands who the sender is. God is the sender. And we're going to see it had a direct bearing on how he responded. We also need to know and understand who the sender is when we experience suffering in our life. We all experience it from one degree or another uh, at any given time in our life. Who's the sender? It's God. It's God. That's counterintuitive, especially if we're using the worldly wisdom, but that's how the Bible presents it. Understanding that God is the sender helps us respond correctly, even when we don't know the why question, even when we don't understand why am I experiencing suffering right now. When we don't have the answer to that question, we're still able to respond in a God-glorifying way because we know who the sender is. Or, to put it another way, when we know who sends the suffering, we don't need to know why we're suffering. Here it is again. When we know who sends the suffering, we don't need to know why we're suffering. So let's look at the, this, the text this morning. This is Job 1. 6 through the end of the chapter. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There, that there is none like him on the earth, a, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does, he, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has? And he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkey feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them. And struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made raid on the camels and took them and and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another 
and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Our passage begins with an opening, there was a day. There was a day. We remember from last week in our introduction to Job, those first five verses firmly established that he was a a blameless man and that everything at that point was running along very peacefully and very smoothly. So there was a day in the midst of the life of Job and it it moves the narrative forward to a time when things are about to, to heat up here. A day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So we're going to answer two questions about this this opening sentence. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Who's present and where are they? Because these are some questions that that inevitably get asked about about that sentence. So first of all, who's present? Sons of God. The sons of God in this context is angels. Angels. Now, anyone paying very close attention, some, some hawk-eyed uh, readers and listeners will remember back in when the book of Genesis, when we moved through and got to chapter 6, we saw that phrase, sons of God, and it was the godly line of Seth. It was people. So we've got sometimes where the sons of God means people, and sometimes where the sons of God means angel. That's because sons of God can refer to both people or angels, depending on the context. Context, And in Job 1, the context, the phrase is referring to angels. Well, how do we know that? Because they're presenting themselves before God to report. Angels are creative beings. They act as God's messengers. They do his will. They complete his will on earth. And they go back and forth between the earthly realm and the spiritual heavenly realm. And they go back and forth to to get orders, to report, to complete, to answer to God, those types of things. But they move back and forth. And right now they're coming before God to report and possibly get some more assignments. So that's how we know it's angels. People do not move back and forth between the spiritual realm and the heavenly realm and report to God and back and forth and so so on. So in this context, the sons of God refers to angels. Now, they both can be referred to as sons of God because they're, because they're both created beings. Remember, only God is eternal. Only God has no beginning. Everything else has a beginning. So both angels and people are created. And because God is both creator to, to both of them, he can be called father. So in theological terms, this is the, the creative aspect of divine fatherhood. Okay, so God created the angels, he also created people, so in that sense he is the, we'll put it in air quotes, father of them both. He's not literally their biological father, we understand that. But from a creative aspect, he's father to both. Now that doesn't mean that uh, the, the children of God, the elect of God, 
are um, sons of God in Christ and unbelievers are also sons of God in Christ. That's not true. That's talking about the adaptive, uh, excuse me, the adoptive aspect of divine fatherhood. Only those who are in Christ can be called sons of God in Christ. I believe it's Acts 17 that, ref- that talks about all people being children of God in that broad sense, in the sense of, of divine creation. Yes, God is the Father, He is the source, He is the beginning, He is the creator of all people and angels, but it is only those who are in Christ, the elect, that can be called sons of God in Christ. So some background on that. I hope that helps unpack that a little bit. Uh, the angels were originally created good. If you remember, they fell. Um, they, were, they were part of the original uh, good creation of God, but they rebelled. They're now evil spirits. Second Peter tells us, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, they cast them into hell. So we know angels had a beginning. We know they were created good, like all other things, but, but they fell, including Satan. And so now we have um, uh, angels, people, and of course, demonic spirits. But this is a strange meeting. Uh, we don't see anything quite like this in, in the rest of, of Scripture. So it's rather strange. Who is there? Well, the sons of God, in this context, the angels. But who else is there? It says Satan was there. Satan also came among them. Satan, the, the word translated uh, means accuser or adversary. But in Hebrew, his name is preceded by the definite article. So it's the accuser. The adversary, which means this is the devil. This is Satan himself. This is not just a general accusing spirit. This is our arch enemy. So the angels are there, the sons of God, and Satan is there. Now let's answer the other question. Why are they there? Or excuse me, where are they? Where where exactly are they? Um, It says before the Lord. They seem to be in the heavenly realm. They seem to be in the heavenly realm reporting to God. Now somebody might raise a hand and and say, now why is Satan in the presence of God? And there are some people that would object to this and say, no, I I can't buy that. God does not tolerate evil in his presence, so they they can't be in heaven. Um, Okay. Um, I I see that argument failing because if they're they're not meeting in heaven, where else are they meeting? Because it still says they're in the presence presence of God. So Satan is in the presence of God. It doesn't really help us if we move this meeting off site. It doesn't really help us if if it's not in heaven, if it's somewhere else, because he's still in the presence of God. So the argument that God does not tolerate any evil, therefore Satan cannot be in the presence of God, that just doesn't work. Um, Most likely in the heavenly realm. And besides, where else would they meet? Where else would the angels be reporting to God and God being uh, there having them come to him? I mean, it just doesn't work. They're not meeting on the the moon. They're not meeting in the the bottom of the ocean or uh, in some conference room somewhere. So it doesn't work to move the meeting somewhere else, most likely in the heavenly realm. We're not told why Satan is coming before God. We're just not given that information, and we have to be content with that. So here's Satan coming before God, most likely in the heavenly realm. But notice also that it's Satan reporting. It's it's not God reporting to Satan. Satan is reporting to God. God's asking the questions here. 
God's holding Satan accountable. It's not as if Satan shows up uh, unexpectedly or or crashes God's party or comes in when he's not invited and and God says, oh no, what am I going to do? No, God's clearly in command of the situation here. One of the, the other clues that tells us, it says God speaks and questions Satan. God's asking the questions. If you remember from those classic crime movies, uh, the, the authorities or our federal agents are interrogating a suspect in the, in the interrogation room with the, with the, you know, the two-way glass, and, and they're questioning the suspect, and the suspect gets a little uppity and, and confident and says something and asks them a question. What's their response? We're the ones asking the question here. Answer us. You don't get to ask the questions. We're the ones asking the questions. That's kind of what's going on here. God's asking the questions. And the question he asked is, where have you come from? Now remember, anytime we read about God asking a question in the Bible, it's not because God doesn't know. God is omniscient. He knows all things, all the time. So this is because God is calling Satan to an account. He's demanding him to confess, to give an answer, to report. Here's his answer. From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it, that sounds kind of vague, doesn't it? Does that sound like a complete answer? That sounds kind of non-committal. That sounds like maybe a, a teenager uh, answering their parents when they've stayed out all, all night and, and they're asking the next morning, where, where were you? Oh, around. Oh, what were you doing till 5 a.m. in the morning? Stuff. Scripture tells us what kind of activity or stuff Satan is up to seeking to kill and destroy people, prowling around looking for someone to devour. That's the kind of thing that Satan's up to. Attacking God's word. All the way back in Genesis 3.1. Did God actually say? Attacking God's word. Tempting God's people. Spreading false doctrine. Persecuting the church. Remember Jesus to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 3.10. Some of you are about to be thrown into to, to prison. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So he's persecuting God's church, always deceiving, always deceiving. Just twisting a little bit, just throwing out so much misinformation that people will will believe it other than, than the truth of God. That's the kind of stuff Satan is up to when he's going to and fro on the earth. Verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? Okay, Satan, if you've been wandering to and fro, certainly you've come across my servant Job, right? There's no one else like him. Blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. This fourfold emphasis on Job's character, remember we talked about this last week, this is one of the keys to understanding the book. Um, It was described, uh, Job was described in the introduction using those same fourfold repetitions to emphasize the the strength of his moral character and his uprightness. Now it's God testifying to Job. It's almost as if the author is saying, okay, I'm going to give this to you twice in a row so you don't miss it. Not only is the author going to describe it in the narrative, but God's word himself, God himself is describing Job as this blameless, upright, fearing God, turning from evil. There should be no question in our mind when the Mack truck hits him in the face going 75 miles an hour, it's not because God is 
giving him retributive justice or paying him back or punishing him for something he did. So we need to understand that. And that's one of the purposes of the repetition of it here in verse 8. But here's the rub. Satan didn't bring Job up. God brought Job up, didn't he? Yeah, there's no indication that Satan was going to to bring up Job or planning on on attacking him or anything like that. God is the one that directs Satan's attention to consider Job. Because God's the sender. He's in charge of all things all the time. Well, what do you think the, the response is, from Satan is going to be in verses 9 and 11? Is he going to agree with God? Is, is Satan going to say, yeah, yeah, you're right. He's, he's really a blameless guy. No. No, Satan's response is also not a flat-out denial. Satan doesn't argue with God by denying it flat-out. Satan doesn't respond by saying, no, he's not. He's not altogether blameless. He doesn't come out with a flat-out denial like a snake. He twists it around and turns it back to God. Oh yeah, and I think we both know why, God. I think it's pretty obvious. You've blessed him. You've given him everything anyone could ever want. Everything he touches turns to gold. Of course he worships you. You take that away, no way he's going to stay loyal to you. Job worships you, God, because you've given him a cushy life. That's why. He doesn't love you for who you are. You're his meal ticket. I'll tell you what, God, take it all away, he will curse you to your face. I think that's pretty obvious, what's going on here. Curse you to your face. Remember back in verse 5, Job was concerned that his children might unintentionally curse God in their heart. So kind of an inner, accidental, cursing God in their heart. Satan challenges God by saying that Job, his most faithful servant, will not just curse God in his heart, but will curse God to his face. Job is saying, if you take these things away, if you remove this hedge of protection around your servant, he will respond with pure, unadulterated rejection, rebellion, denial. Verse 12, God responds by giving Satan permission to do whatever he wants with Job's life, change whatever circumstances he wants to change. Only on the man you may not touch. Everything else is... Fair game. And the scene ends with Satan slinking away from the presence of God. And I can't help but think there's some some malevolent anticipation that, that Satan's excited about what he's going to do to Job. Well, here it comes. The, the Lord takes away verses 13 and 15, this, this tidal wave of tragedy. This tsunami of suffering, it's, it's going to break on Job in, in four successive waves, and it comes unexpectedly. Job and his family have no idea that they're about to get hit. Sons and daughters were celebrating, probably one of those birthday celebrations where they're all together in one location. Donkeys were feeding, just another normal, peaceful day in the life of Job. Boom, the Sabians fell upon the oxen and donkeys, stole them, 
killing everyone except the messenger. Sabians were these, these nomadic merchant type peoples. 16, boom, the fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and his servants, killing everyone except the messenger. This could have been lightning or multiple lightning strikes. 17, boom, the Chaldeans came, raided the camels, stealing them all, killing everyone except the messenger. 18, 19, the last blow, boom, a great wind came, struck the four corners of the house, it fell upon all his children, killing them, and the only one to escape is the messenger. Everything's gone. And Job's response is recorded for us. He arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and those are signs of mourning, grief, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. In response to this tidal wave of tragedy, Job worshipped. And the only reason he was able to do that, remember from last week, is because he had that firm faith foundation in place. He, was a, a, he worshipped continually, continual faith. Is, is, was part of who he was. So he had a continual faith that was, that was ready to respond when called upon, and he was able to respond this way because he understood who the sender was. He understood who the sender was. Look, the naked I came from a mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. The Lord has taken away. Who brought the suffering? The Lord brought it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job is acknowledging God's right to give. Job is acknowledging God's right to take away at any time. He's acknowledging the truth that he was born with nothing. He's going to die with nothing. That's true of all of us. Job held everything he had with an open hand, not a tight fist. And so when this struck him, he was able to release it and worship God, even his own children, because he recognized they ultimately weren't his, they belonged to God. And so he responded in worship, but he also responds with worship because he identifies the sender, the sender of the suffering. God has taken away. God has the divine right to do whatever God wants to do. So in this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So if we had to summarize this, this passage, we, say, we would say this. God tests Job's faith by sending Satan and giving him permission to take away everything that Job has. And Job passes the test, at least this first wave of the test, and trusts God in the midst of suffering. So this, this was definitely a severe test. This is something that we don't normally run up against, something this, this severe, the successive waves that happened, the timing of this all. I mean, yeah, this is not normal. This is a severe test of faith. And he responded in worship because he understood who the sender was. I overheard someone say in the midst of a, of a tragic event, uh, why would God allow this? Oh, that's right, this isn't from God. God wouldn't do this. As almost, as, almost as if they, they caught themselves in bad theology and then they self-corrected themselves to, to remind them, oh yeah, these bad things, they don't come from God. Wrong. They do. 
They do. All things are ultimately from God. Have we forgotten our lesson from Genesis 50 already? Remember at the very end, Joseph summarizes everything that his brothers, all those evil things that they did to him, uh, hating him, stripping him, beating him, throwing him in the pit, leaving, then sitting down, having a lunch as, as he pleads for help, and then selling him to slavery. Yeah, all those evil things. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Who is the sender? God. Who caused all that to happen to Joseph? God. God was the sender. Satan does not do things that are outside of God's sovereignty and providence. We can't point to tragedy and suffering and say, ah, too bad God didn't stop that from happening. God was the sender. Suffering and hardship are used by God to accomplish his grand redemptive plan. God's plan has as its ultimate goal the glory of God. That is one of the takeaways that I want us to be sure we grab hold on with both hands this morning. The ultimate goal of God's redemptive plan, the ultimate goal of God's creation, the ultimate goal of God creating angels and men and the earth and everything in it is God's own glory. That's the goal. Not to give us the life we always wanted. We've got to understand that. The problem of evil is only a problem for those who do not know God, who do not know the Bible. They assume that, you've probably heard this before, they assume that an all-powerful and good God can't simultaneously exist along with suffering and evil. Or so the thinking goes. They would say something like this, well, either God's not powerful enough, either God's really good and he's, and he's for us, he's a good God, but he's just not powerful. So when bad things happen and when evil things happening. He just can't quite get on top of that and and curtail it or bring it to an end. That's one option. Or, God is all-powerful and he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, but he's not altogether good because he allowed that evil and suffering to happen. And that was really bad. So God must not be all good. What they don't take into account is God's purpose in creation. His ultimate purpose in all things is his own glory, not providing all people with a comfortable life. God's purpose is not to end all evil and suffering. I hope we understand that. God's ultimate goal is not to bring an end to all evil and suffering. In fact, he uses it for his purposes. And number one is to glorify himself. Since the fall, it is part of the human experience and it will continue until Christ returns. Again, Joseph, Genesis 50. Did God allow that to happen? Or was God the sender? He he decreed it. He's the sender. God was using that to move Joseph where he needed to be for his grand redemptive plan. Or let us consider just for a moment the cross. Did God allow the cross to happen? There's a lot of suffering going on there. Did God allow that to happen? No, he decreed it. He's the sender. Was that Satan's plan that he messed things up when Jesus went to the cross? No, it was God's plan from eternity 
because he is the sender and he uses suffering and evil for his purposes. Now he's not responsible for that. Satan, people are morally culpable before God, but God is ultimately the sender. We've got to differentiate between that, uh, between those, the, the assumption that, that a good and all-powerful God can't coexist along simultaneously with evil and suffering. That's not true. God does not exist to end all evil and suffering. He exists for his own glory. Let's take a look at some scripture passages to help cement this, and then a confessional summary. So, Ephesians 1, 4, and 11, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, not just good things, all things according to the counsel of his will. So those are, that's a good thing, saving people, uh, choosing the elect from before the eternity uh, beginning and uh, from before the foundation of the world. Those are good things. But notice he works all things. And now let's look at Jude 4 and 1 Peter. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. Long ago designated. By who? God. 1 Peter 2.8, they stumble because in the context of Unbelievers, talking about unbelievers, they stumble, they unbelievers, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Destined by who? Themselves? Satan? Is Satan in charge? No. God. This is a difficult pill to swallow in 2021, but this is scripture. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Always are inscrutable. Psalm 145 The Lord is righteous in all his ways. Not just the good ones from our perspective. Not just some of them. All his ways. And then finally, I said a confessional summary. So here's our, our friend, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Q&A number seven. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal plan based on the purpose of his will by which for his own glory, he has ordained everything that happens. What a clear, concise summary of the decrees of God. Do you see that? God is in charge and everything that he decrees he has done so from the beginning and it is for what? His glory. All things, even suffering and bad things that happen to us and in the world. God used Satan as an agent to be sure. God used Satan as an agent to bring about a time of testing on Job. But God, God already knew the outcome. It's not as if Satan... Uh, went out and, and, and brought all this, this evil and suffering on Job and God was sitting back saying, I really hope this works out. I'm going out on a limb here, Job. I thought, I'm, I'm counting on you being as blameless as I thought you were. I guess we'll just have to roll the dice and see how things turn out. No. He decreed it from the beginning. We, we can't comprehend it because our minds are finite. God knows all things from all time, he's got everything at his, at his fingertips at any given moment. And he can see it all and he is God. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He's the sender. 
how about us? When, when a tidal wave of tragedy hits us, we're, we're called to respond with the same thing, continual worship. We're called to respond with worship. That is the God-glorifying response to suffering and evil when it touches us, when it comes into our life. Praising God, trusting God, acknowledging His divine right to give and to take away. No matter what God sends, we are to worship Him. Now, I'm not saying that we're not to mourn at all. I mean, when we experience the loss, especially of, of loved ones, when people die, mourning is natural. Tears will be shed. But it's possible to mourn in faith. It's possible to mourn and at the same time trust God. Recognizing that He's the sender. Recognizing that He knows more, much more than we do. Now our sinful nature desires to sit in judgment over God. Our, our sinful nature desires that, that uh, will, will tell us, you really should probably you know, know better than God in this situation. Our sinful nature wants to lash out with, with questions like, why me? This isn't fair. How could you do this to me, God? That's our sinful nature speaking. That's not faith. And remember, those questions would make a lot more sense if it was Satan being the sender and, and God standing back with his hands tied saying, I'm sorry, I'm just going to allow this one. Then those questions make sense. Why? Why would you allow this? No, I'm the sender, says God. You've got to trust me. Yeah, those, those objections disappear pretty quickly when we realize God is the sender. We no, longer, we no longer need to ask, why is this happening to me? God didn't allow it. He decreed it. So now we don't have to know the answer to the why question because we know who the sender is. Since God is the sender, we can respond with faith and worship, knowing everything that's happening in our lives is for His glory first, and then if we are believers, for our good also. But it's always for God's glory first. We're not first. God's first. God's first. It, it, uh, it puzzles me to... It actually is quite tragic to, to watch professing believers kind of lash out at God during suffering because we belong to God and, and, and we know this and if we've got good theology, if we know God we know his, his personality if we know the Bible, if we know scripture then, then we should be trusting God when we lash out to God as unbelievers it's not pretty, it, it's as if we've been given a, a small piece of a jigsaw puzzle imagine a, not a, a thousand piece but a, a million piece jigsaw puzzle like Something that would cover the, the sanctuary here. And, and one tiny piece, we've, we've broken off like one of, those, one of those tabs, a little ear off of one piece. And we're given that little, little piece of the piece. And, and we look at it and we, we've not seen the cover of the box. And we say, I, I don't see how this could possibly contribute to the picture that's on the box, God. What do you mean? Why would you send me this little piece of suffering? This doesn't fit in my life or what you're trying to do. We don't even know what's on the cover of the box. How do we know what this little piece, we, it doesn't tell us anything. We don't know the eternal plan of God. 
We don't know all things. We don't know how um, people and timing and events and circumstances all you know, kind of cog together and, and interlap or overlap and, and interlace together. We don't know that. We're not God. We have to trust him. When we experience suffering, no matter how severe, we worship him because he's God and he has the divine right to do what he wants, when he wants, and we need to remember his glory. His glory is the goal, not our comfortable life. Which one trumps the other? Our desires, our comfort, or God's glory? God's glory. And now here's the difference, and I, I want us to take this away too, because it's helpful if we're ever engaging someone who's, who's not yet in Christ, if we're talking to unbelievers. Here is the difference, right here. For believers, we wouldn't want it any other way. We, we wouldn't want um, God not to be glorified. Because we have the Spirit of Christ in us, because we have... Have, have, have scripture at our fingertips and, and God has given us this light and have, has called us and, and has called us his own, we have an understanding of our purpose for existence and our purpose is to glorify God. We wouldn't any other way. We wouldn't want it any other way. We, we would gladly pour out our lives for the glory of God. We, we would joyfully sacrifice everything if it means bringing God glory. That's where unbelievers are. We exist for God. Now the difference is unbelievers don't. So, so when unbelievers um, have such a difficult time between God and, and suffering, they really don't want God's glory to be first, or they don't understand yet that God's glory comes first. They want themselves to be first. Do you see that? Unbelievers don't view themselves as existing for God if anything, it's the reverse. God exists for them. They, they imagine a God that exists for them. They imagine a God whose primary purpose had better be to remove evil and suffering in the world. Stop those people from suffering, God. That's your job. No. No, it's not. They want a good God, but not a holy God. They want a good God, but not one that they have to bow down to. That's what, just where believers are. They, they want God to intervene and bring peace and the end of suffering and bring us this utopian world where everything is good, especially for them. But then they want God to usher out the door. We'll take it from here. We'll set up our own rule. I'll do what I want. I certainly don't want any moral accountability to you. But I do want a suffering-free life. That's not how God operates. God has as his goal his own glory. Brothers and sisters, there may be a day when your faith is tested. There may be a day when you are tested in a way that seems harsh and severe. There may be a time when it seems like there's more than you can handle physically and emotionally and spiritually, and you will be tempted to abandon what you know to be true, and that is that God exists um, not for us, he created all things for his glory. There will be a time when you're tempted to forget all that, that God is the sender of your suffering. You may be tempted to give yourself permission to start to complain or grumble or turn inward. 
You'll be tempted to feel sorry for yourself, to withdraw, to isolate. The pain will be intense. Apathy and depression will call to you like twin sirens, seducting, uh, seductive, seductively calling, wanting you to join them. You'll be tempted to seek refuge from your pain apart from God, to medicate in any way that it seems best to you, just provide relief in whatever means possible, even if just for a while. I want us to remember that when that time comes, when we experience suffering that is beyond everything else we've ever experienced, I want us to remember that it is possible to remain faithful during times of testing. It can be done. It starts with recognizing that God exists and that also, that, that we, excuse me, that we exist for the glory of God. It, it starts with understanding that the suffering isn't something that allowed or that it got out of hand or that is a problem. God is the sender and he knows what he's doing. We, we don't even know what's on the cover of the box, let alone what this, we don't even know what the, the rest of this piece, this little, uh, this little shard or this little, scrap goes to. Even when we don't have the why question answered, and we may never have an answer in this life, we understand who is the sender so we can respond by glorifying God. Amen. Father, we experience suffering in this life. And we want to glorify you in all things, including responding to that suffering. So Father, help us not to turn inward. Help us not to take a questioning or accusatory stance before you. Father, help us confess and freely acknowledge you are the center of all things in our life. It is for your glory first. And because we're in Christ, it is also for our good. Help us to trust you by rightly understanding where suffering comes from, who the ultimate sender is. You are a good God. You are all-powerful. And we know that all things ultimately bring you glory. Amen.